Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Welcome back to Once a DJ. We're here today with music industry economist, DJ, and author of the book Pivot, Will Page, to talk about how he brought together the two worlds of music and economics. But firstly, how did you get into DJing? The inspiration for DJing for me came from hip-hop, unsurprisingly. Perhaps more surprisingly is the lyric in hip-hop, which kind of told me to come off the hard shoulder, go down a different route and pursue this passion for the rest of my life. And the lyric comes from a rap band called the Jungle Brothers. Uh, The album is called Done by the Forces of Nature. And the rappers, Mike G, who I'll just preface my point by saying I was honored that last year's Mixed Project on Mixcloud has a shout out and a lyric from Mike G personally given to me. But he has this line in this song where he says, it's about getting the music across, getting the message across, getting it across without crossing over. And it's the compounding of the points, Adam. It's the way he compounds the points, getting the music across, getting the message across. So now we divide the rhythm from the lyric, which is core to hip hop culture, getting it across, whatever else you want to get across, but without crossing over, without diluting the integrity of your of your your message, of your art. And I so I'm just a prepubescent kid listening to hip hop on the headphones at this stage of my life. And when I heard that, it made me think about has he just defined art? Art's a three-letter word with an awful lot of meaning, and we can all agree to disagree what art means, but if you can get your message across without crossing over, is that, in effect, what art is? And I just latched onto that lyric, and I just couldn't shake it out of my head. It was stuck in my dome, and it was remained there for, what, 30-plus years and counting, and it's just a really powerful message of thinking when you you know, for your audience, when you step into that DJ booth and when you unpack that vinyl bag or set up your digital equipment, Serato or whatever, when you're in that position and you're looking at a dance floor, you've got to hold in your head, front of mind, how am I going to get this music across without crossing over? How am I not going to dilute what I'm going to say before I say it? And I just think it's a really powerful statement that didn't give me any choice in the matter. You know, from that day onwards, from that lyric onwards, that was me. Like, I want to dedicate a whole chunk of my life to finding music other people can't find and getting it across without crossing over, whether it's, you know, making a documentary about high life music, which we can get into later in this podcast, whether it's just making mixtapes to date girls back at Glasgow University in the late 90s, 
whatever the purpose was, it comes from that lyric because that lyric for me captures what art means to me, getting the message across without crossing over. So how old were you when, because that's quite a profound thought and response to a lyric. Um, how old were you when you heard that? 14, I think, which based on my current age puts me in about 1794 in terms of the years, but around the time uh, of Adam <laughs> Smith. Um, but yeah, yeah, like a very sort of going through high school age. That's the key point. I mean, I, I can build on that too, and it's not to get too personal on on, on uh, the human development here, but we have a theory at Spotify, which is the music that you're exposed to during puberty, boy, girl, is the music that sticks with you for the rest of your life for a reason. And the reason is around that time, and it's not just your body, it's your mind, it's your soul, you're going through an incredible period of uncertainty. The body's changing rapidly, the mind is changing rapidly, life around you is changing rapidly, and that's when music talks to you when your siblings, your parents, your friends can't talk to you because the issues are too intimate. And that intimacy thing is a really important factor here, which is, you know, if the song is teaching me that lyric back then and no one else is teaching me, then I go with the song. That's my new best friend. You know, that's my blood brother to get me through the next, you know, uh, the next turbulent two or three years of my life. And I, I really, we have data, and I don't want to talk about data here. This is a podcast about passion, but there's data to prove that it's the music that you're exposed to around that part in your life that often sticks with you for the rest of your life. There is a, there is a lighter version of this. This is a super heavy topic to land at the start of the podcast, but I'll, <laughs> I'll add sugar to the tea. There is a lighter version, which we call the hairstyle analogy, which is around your teens, you experiment with different hairstyles, maybe long hair, maybe short hair, maybe a mullet, maybe a mullet, but you tend to settle on one towards the end of your teens and that's your hairstyle for the rest of your life. We also apply that lighter form of the analogy that to explain how music taste works, which is by the time you're getting to the end of your teens, you've decided your jazz, your rock, your pop, your hip hop, and that becomes your dominant genre. But it's interesting to see how tastes that last for the next 80 years are formed during those crucial two or three years. But yeah, that's that's really interesting. And uh, like you say, we don't want to be getting into just just a load of data. But do you think that's going to stay the same with that? People's access to music is so much broader now. Yeah. Do you think it's going to still retain that tribal sort of element? Well, I'm going to cite a dear friend and a longtime inspiration of mine, Ross Michaels from Park Avenue Artists, manager of Yeba, Joshua Bell very eclectic range of artists because we constantly jive of this topic of intimacy. And I'm going to open it up to your audience by saying a very bold statement, which is the internet can scale just about anything, just about anything. Look at what chat GPT is scaling right now. It can scale everything you could want, but it cannot, cannot scale intimacy. And that's interesting. You know, the internet's transformed everything except one thing which matters to us most. And in the book, I talk about the anomaly that music's never been more valuable. I mean, look at catalog valuations, look at the latest industry numbers, growth of 9% after the previous year, which was growth of 18%. This is a business that's booming. It's never been more valuable, but never been less relevant. You find me one person in the city of Derby today or the city of London or my hometown of Edinburgh who can tell me who's number one in the charts. 
I'll buy them a bottle of space-side sherry cask whiskey. Nobody knows, nobody cares. So to get into this topic, which is a passionate one for me, I, I go back to David Bowie's interview, famous interview in the New York Times, and can I also add on YouTube an interview with Jeremy Paxman from YouTube around the time of the millennium, in the year 2000, where he said eventually music's just going to be water coming out of a tap. It's background. So we listen to music on Spotify, Amazon, Apple, YouTube, but it's just a thumb press on a piece of glass, and then you're away. That's different from huddling as humans inside a record shop and speaking to the person across the counter. That's the in different from having your name shouted out by a human being, radio DJ, broadcasting one to many. So, you know, there's 20 million people using Spotify in this country. There's 20 million people listening to BBC Radio 2. When Radio 2 plays a song, we all listen together. When Spotify plays a song, 20 million people have 20 million different playlists. We're losing that shared experience that creates intimacy in music. And it's not all bad. There's lots and lots of good we can get into. But I think, to your question, that intimacy word has value. And that value, I think, has largely been lost because we have all of this choice. So just going back to that Jungle Brothers song then, um, thinking about how much that lyric resonated with you and the risk that how people are consuming now, they might might not have that that journey of music being given to them by a trusted source that, you know, because the way that we get it, it might just be something that's on the back of a playlist which might impact someone's life if they have that and listen to it enough times because they're um because it's got a preciousness to it, if you like. Um you know, that might be lost now. Um, so what was the path of you getting that Jungle Brothers, um, was it tape? I'm guessing tape. <laughs> it was a gramophone. No, it was cassette tape. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how, how did you end up with that? What was, what, was, what was the path, the journey that got you to there? You grew up in Edinburgh, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, the, the song, by the way, is called In Days to Come, and that takes some spellings. They were doing you know, TikTok SMS text spelling way before the mobile phone, effectively. In days with a Z, number two, then come C-O-M-E. So just to get the, the name check of the song correct. Um, I think my exposure to music started with my mum, who had some cassettes. And I said, what are these? They're cassettes. Who should you listen to? And she said, you should listen to Queen. They've got four people in the band and they can all sing. And I always remember that sentence. They got four people in a band and they can all sing. Like, wow, how does music sound when all four members can sing versus just one? Made me interested in, you know, getting a little bit to the left of the middle in terms of musical taste, like going down that path. I want mischievous music. I don't. Go, I got no room for squares when it comes to music. I got to stay on the edge. And then journey through there, I think I was stumbling across heavy metal and hard rock, and I was particularly interested at a very young age in the guitar solos. And I'll say this then, and I'll say this now. It's quite bizarre with heavy metal artists, how they look like death warmed up. But whenever you meet them and work with them, and I've worked with a few, they're the most educated, classically trained, eloquent people you've ever met. <laughs> yeah. So there's that heavy metal band Carcass, which is all medical students from a top medical school. and <laughs> They just write lyrics about their operations on a daily basis. So I was interested in that because that had an edge. I was also interested in the heavy metal hip-hop crossover, Public Enemy and Anthrax were doing yeah. stuff. 
as well. And then I stumbled on the band Public Enemy. And I think the crispness of the beat was one thing. My 98 um, is going to get yours. But also, and it's weird, it's not the hip-hop. It's the way that Chuck D projected his voice like a sports announcer, which I learned in later years was his whole goal. He was inspired by this American sports presenter who bellowed his voice out to the audience and that that's basic. I wish I could give you the name of the podcast. I think it's May Morv Hallen. Oh, we can figure it out, but do a correction. But um, he based his entire vocal structure around the sports announcement. I think that's what appealed to me. And that what that did was that made you visit the lyrics. So for the first time, a I'm listening to music, not unusual there. But now I want to get context on the lyrics. What are these rappers saying? And I think that was the tug that brought me into the hip hop lane for the rest of my life in terms of what are these people saying, right? What are they meaning? Okay, then how can I use that in my life? And that's why we always say rap is something you do, hip hop is something you live. Rap is a genre, hip hop is a lifestyle. I'm taking these lyrics and apply it to me to give me confidence, to give me an attitude, to give me a belief that the path I'm taking is a path that I can believe in. So I, I credit Chuck D and Public Enemy with that element. Then moving to Jungle Brothers, that was for me and still is done by the Forces Nature, one of the greatest albums ever. Um, but that also brought me an introduction to sampling in a way that I hadn't had before. Some of the sampling that goes on that record. There's a Bill Cosby sample on that record, which is phenomenal. I have to say, I bought a Bill Cosby record. Okay, cancel me, but I had to get that sample. Um, it's just just mind-blowing how that introduced me to music of the present back then, hip-hop, but then the music of the past, which records from the 70s and 80s. And that's, that's, that really kind of said, buckle up, put your seatbelt on, clunk-click every trip, because this is, this is you for the next 80 years of your life. Yeah, just just an honourable mention there to sound engineer Bob Power, mm -hmm. who works on the Jungle Brothers, Tribe Called Quest, things like that. For anyone that's listening, if they want to hear any interviews with Bob Power, he's a fascinating guy. Um, he really shaped um, the sound of hip-hop in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and he's, yeah, really interesting, captivating guy that's worth a listen. Um, so just to get back onto your story after that brief little detour then, Will, um, did economics come into your life at a similar time? Because I believe you kind of learned a lot about that at quite a young age, right? Yeah, it predates hip-hop. Um, and I tell the story in my book, Tarzan Economics as a hardback, Pivot as a paperback, and on Audible, of being 11 years old and being jealous because my older brother, Tom, had been taught what economics is and sibling rivalry kicks in. Like, if he learns something, i got to learn something. I can't beat him up because he's a whole lot bigger than me. He's a lot forward in rugby, so I can't go to physical violence, but I can ask my dad to teach me what he taught him. And I was at the beach in Scotland, where my parents are from, is just a few miles north of the English border, a beautiful part of the country. The part of the country where the train is, if you take the train to Edinburgh, is almost dipping into the sea. And uh, I said to my dad, 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 what's economics? And he said, part of my French here, piss off, son, I'm on my holidays. I said, come on, Dad, you've got to teach me. You've taught Tom. No, F off, son. I'm on my holidays. I'm not teaching you economics. Said, you got to teach me economics because Tom knows and I got to know. We got to match each other. I was like, all right, we're at the beach. Let's just do an experiment. You're going to be the prime minister and I'm going to give you a problem to solve. Last year, over 20 children drowned in British waters. And that's a tragedy. 
British children drowning in British waters, just like the beach that you see in front of us. And you're going to walk out of number 10 Downing Street, and you're going to stare at grieving parents, angry politicians, and a hostile press, and you've got to come up with a solution. What's your solution? And I'm 11. Let me ask you, Adam, you're not 11. What would be your solution, your political solution, to British kids drowning in British waters? You've caught me off guard there. That's what my dad <laughs> was trying no to do. Because this whole thing is about what's your knee-jerk reaction? Kick it. So my knee-jerk reaction was to make swimming compulsory. I'm an 11-year-old boy, right at the beach, and I said to my dad, I'll make swimming compulsory. He said, fine, that's politics. Now let's apply some economics, which is only abstraction. It's not about Greek formulas or crazy mathematics. It's can you look at a problem differently to spot a different path forward? Where were the kids, son? They were at the beach, Dad. What were they doing at the beach, son? They were swimming in the sea, Dad. What does that tell you about their ability to swim or not? That meant they could swim, Dad. Why? And my answer went, because kids who can't swim don't go into water. Okay, now let's have a look at your policy. You're going to make swimming compulsory. Will we have more or less children swimming in British water as a result of your policy? We'll have more, Dad. And if 0.001% of them die fatally, will we have more or less deaths as a result of your policy? Penny drops. Dad, we're going to have more. And right there is where I built my passion for economics. I wanted to make the problem better, but my policy, with all best intentions, would have made the problem worse. What we call in economics the unintended consequences. I almost started crying in front of them, like, how could I have messed up? That's terrible. Like, I'll pollute the sea with more kids, therefore we're going to have more deaths. What's the solution? And he said, well, we could think about a couple of things. Information, knowing where those dangerous species are, and regulation. Perhaps have a flag system so parents and kids know it's a red flag, don't go out. It's a yellow flag, knee-high only. It's a green flag, go for your life and swim as much as you want. You know, these are solutions. Now, that made me comfortable with, A, we could solve the problem, but that made me fascinated, and B, I've just uncovered what economics is. It's abstraction. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, then I moved to London in 2006 to become the first ever economist in the, in the music industry. There's never been one before, so I got a blank sheet of paper here, and I told that story to the general counsel of the Performing Rights Society, a brilliant lawyer by the name of Debbie Stone. She asked a question that you asked, how did you get into economics? And I walked her through the story about being at the beach with my dad and got to the end and said, you know, I would have made the problem worse despite trying to make the problem better. And she put down her knife and put down her fork and she said, I'd have just banned the kids from swimming. <laughs> That's why lawyers and economists never see eye to eye. Yeah. You can't <laughs> ban children from swimming, Debbie. You have to think about abstracting the problem to work out a better solution. Mine was bad. Hers was worse. And by the way, around that time, let's imagine banning the kids from getting music from the internet. It's not that dissimilar. We can get into that topic if you want. Um, but it was just a great example of, A, that's what economics is, and B, that's why lawyers and other professions always seem to think differently from us. We're an awkward bunch. We don't, we don't, we're a square peg and the rest of the world is a round hole. We don't quite fit in, but it gives you a good example of how to think like an economist. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Once a DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Once a DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. 
These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oneadj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what you're waiting for, visit howtomakemusic.co. So you were thinking deeply then from a young age about the world, about how things work, trying to make sense of things maybe a bit younger than some kids would be or in deeper terms than some kids would be. Do you think the Jungle Brothers and that message kind of clicked with you because of the type of ways that you were thinking at that time? That's a deep question. Um, I think hip-hop as a culture and lyrics that resonate with you in the case of getting the message across without crossing over, I think it gives you a belief that you don't have to behave like sheep. You know, like how sheep move in a field, they move in a flock, and they all go together. This flock of sheep, we all go there. What if there's a cliff edge here? It doesn't matter. We're all going there, so we go there anyway. We all go this way. Well, there's no grass there. Well, we just go there because we're all going there. And I, I was always, <laughs> a bit of a farming background here, thinking about, at a very young age, how people often behave like sheep. And that upset me. I don't want to behave like a sheep. I want to go where I want to go. I don't care if there's 29 sheep going this way. I want to be the 30th sheep that goes that way. And, you know, take that from a sort of childhood experience in the Scottish borders farming. And you can take that right the way up to the present day in terms of herd-like behavior in the stock market, the tendency for us all to do what everyone else is doing. I just think there's, you know, a large chunk of the population subscribes to that. And there's a small chunk of the population that has a belief in doing things differently. That there's a, there's a value to not going with that herd. There's a value to not following that flock, just picking your own direction. There could be some application there. Um, I don't know whether it's a, a great citation to bring to this part of your conversation for your listeners, but uh, we recently interviewed Sir Peter Bazalgette uh, who brought Big Brother to the UK, one of the most powerful people in TV creative industries in this country, a brilliant, brilliant brain. And he's got a book called The Empathy Instinct. And he talks about how as children, as babies, if one baby cries, the other babies cry with them. Not because they're upset, because one baby cries. If one girl screams at the Beatles coming on stage in 1965, then all the girls scream at the Beatles. Not because they want to scream, because one's screaming. And I'm interested in that contagion thing of herd-like behavior. If, we, if somebody is doing something, everyone else does the same thing. Well, fine, but I think hip-hop culture gives you the belief that you don't have to do that thing. You don't have to follow the sheep. 
You just follow your own path and see where that takes you. And it becomes much more individualistic. So did you have friends around you that you were into hip hop with or was it a really individual journey? Very individual. <laughs> I think you can blame that on the Walkman and headphones because now you're listening to music no one else has to listen to. So I think it's it's your space. And hip hop and headphones is quite a phenomenal genre anyway. You hear so much more, especially with bands like Jungle Brothers, Public Enemy, Tribe Called Quest. And that sample culture, that was made for headphones too. So I think very, very unique in terms of it's your journey, it's your lyrics. It's your, back to that word intimacy. It's music that's intimacy is for you and the song and not for anyone else. Yeah, I think there's something really special as well about the journey of discovery of music. Like it's something I really like about buying vinyl, um, buying vinyl from secondhand places specifically, mm. is that, and particularly when, when it's not arranged into genre, it can be a blessing or it can be a curse. If it's interesting stuff that's not arranged into genre, then you just never go know what you're going to look at and go, that's a bit interesting. You maybe have a little Google about it or see who's playing on it, things like that. And you find stuff you just wouldn't end up finding otherwise. And there's a real gratification to that, finding those things that people might know about elsewhere, but it's, it's your own little um, journey of discovery that's got you to that. Yeah, there's been some kind of fuzzy behavioral science work around that i don't know whether it could apply here but they talk about the ikea effect which is if you build your own furniture you value it more than if somebody else built it for you because that sofa you know <laughs> took you to the point of divorce but you built it you know i put the screws on that sofa and then i sit on it i value what i did so i think you can take that ikea effect there's a bit of fuzzy logic there but just take that concept of involvement you went to the record shop you were visiting bristol for the first time when you got tipped off that there's this amazing secondhand record shop down a side street and you asked a guy to open the store early and you spent time speaking with him at the counter and you decided on the selection of records that's all you that's not an algorithm that's not touching your thumb against a piece of glass that's you physically getting involved physical memory is mental memory and you treasure that moment so when you play that record it's more than just a needle on a record. There's something else going on there too. Yeah. Just just on the side then from that, I'll probably take this out. Have you seen about the IKEA Barrett Holmes deal? No. So there's there's I, I don't know the exact ins and outs of it, but there's there's basically some sort of partnership being developed where Barrett Holmes are going to come fully furnished with IKEA. And I was discussing this this with someone the other day. I mean, I I was surprised because I didn't realise how big Barrett Holmes were. Um, but also that you're moving into a house rather than a home then it seems quite interesting just given what you were just saying yeah yeah <laughs> where's the journey <laughs> yeah it's it's you're just going to lose a lot of that personality um, yeah where's the friction and that's the interesting thing about when you look back at digitization of music and media and culture where's the friction where's the actual rough with the smooth that brings reward out you know that's that's gone and back to david bowie now you know you just put your interaction with your actual mobile phone music app could be a matter of seconds at best you pull it out your pocket you select which playlist you want the radio features going to kick in when the playlist is over and the rest of the time it just sits in your pocket filling the background noise are you looking yeah. at the screen no that's that's the crazy thing is consumption's up but intimacy is down. Where's the story? 
about that certain song, how you found it, you know. To the credit, you are getting things like lyrics on Apple and Spotify and other apps too. That's helpful. You are getting more context. The Apple Music Classical apps try to do a bit of more like that as well. But, you know, that's all still behind a piece of glass, which for the large part is stuck in your pocket or you're using another app whilst listening. It's not you reading the liner notes of a record. It's not you opening a gatefold sleeve and appreciating the art. That, that, that bit's... Yeah, you can't price what's priceless, and that, that it really is an example of priceless. Yeah, definitely. So just going back to your journey then, from from being 14, and how did you develop the DJing? Yeah, so I then, um, using cassette tapes, started getting into mixtape culture, and yeah. have still got, and moved into a new house recently, and I found that we still have it in the larder, um, the double deck cassette tape Akai system, which boy, did I bust the ass out of that thing in terms of all the techniques of stopping and starting. And I, learning that Public Enemy actually built some of their records by just stopping starting cassette tapes as well. Quite crazy. So, yeah, getting to there. And then I thought, well, I want to do mixtapes for people I really, really value or I really, really want to date. And um, got into ordering the mixes then providing liner notes with them, explaining why this song is going to work with the song that follows. And it's like notorious for it. Like at Glasgow University, I was knocking out 160 of these and just flooding the market. Like <laughs> there's a lot of people who studied in Glasgow during those years who has a mixtape from myself. It's just <laughs> remarkable. But I did it at scale. And the liner notes are really important because I was trying to get the message across without crossing over. You know, this is a song, Afro Blue, and I want you to hear it for this purpose so you understand why it's intimate to me, so hopefully it can be intimate to you. And, yeah, that was a really big thing for me. A lot of cassette tapes, Jesus Christ, I bought so many. A lot of rubber bands to hold the liner notes in place. You think about all the sort of minutiae of details. A lot of printing of lyric sheets and, you know, liner notes. But I want to do the full thing. I want to give people a 60-minute, 90-minute experience that they'd never forget and to the credit, the number of people who say they still have them after all these years, still play them. They were good mixes, good mixes, but they achieved the goal. Yeah, that's really satisfying, isn't it? Doing the doing the self build sort of thing. I can remember when I I put a mix out into shops, and when I say shops, I mean literally. I think probably two shops. <laughs> mm -hmm. But just going off and dealing with someone to get the print runs done waiting to get the designs finished. I got them done by a friend and because they were done by a friend, it took about a year. The downside, that's the downside of getting freebies. I've, I found that was a pretty, pretty good lesson in that. Um, and yeah, you learn so much from that process and it's really satisfying when you've got that thing at the end of it, but to say if you've got it on mass and you go, I've, I've made that, that's all yeah. me. You know, did you, w was it always just mixtapes then or did you start to DJ out? Uh, so DJing out really began, um, I put a pin on it. So in my second last year at Glasgow University, I stayed really close to a place called Ashton Lane, which is a lovely street in the West End of Glasgow where lots of restaurants, bars, and there's a big DJ culture there as well. And there was a pub called the Anushka, I think it was, which had an upstairs area with a DJ booth. 
and I was watching the DJs play there and seeing what they were doing. I was thinking, well, you know, you need a lot of confidence to DJ. It looks easy. It ain't. You know this better than anyone. But I was watching what the DJs were doing, and I just felt I could do a better job. And I said, give me a slot. And I remember I got my first DJ slot there, and there was a track called The Funky Low Lies that I played, which is a CK Man beat reworked. It's a 12-inch. And I dropped that track at the point when everyone was you know, planning to get their last round before going out to the nightclub, subclub, places like that. You get that energy in the dance floor. This is a sit-down bar, and I played that track, and the place just went ballistic. And by the end of it, I mean, we're talking people, when I say dancing on tables, I genuinely mean dancing on tables and stools. The track just elevated everybody up, this big thumping bass drum beat, um, and this rolling hypnotic West African Ghanaian sound. And there was just a queue of people saying, what is that record? What is that record? And I got sent that record from Germany, so you couldn't buy it anywhere. So extra kudos, you got a record no one else can buy. Um, and I thought, well, that as efforts, first time rookie efforts go to break your DJ virginity, well, <laughs> I want to get laid again. This is, this is for me. So I, I, I was just thrilled to see that everybody was leaving that bar in Ashton Lane, you know, humming, thumping out that, this 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 bass drum in the funky low lights track from CK Man, and it's like right. This is for me. This is for me. I want a residency every Wednesday. I want to take this place and do exactly what I did tonight. Got the residency and then started building up there with very sort of intimate bookings, but one-off bookings. Not like a, not a working DJ per se, but more like a special event DJ. If there's an event which I felt I could take on, I would take it on as well and started building a reputation with mixtapes on one side with ashton lane on the other side and started building it out from there that was the foundations so at that time were you glad to be doing it like that without without the fixed residency or were you chasing the residency i wasn't chasing the residency it was uh, a it was a dedicated student so i wanted to balance work and studies yeah um and you got to be careful coming home at four in the morning and then going to lecture at 10 ain't gonna work um, not even at that university, and that was a party town. But uh, yeah, I, I wanted to balance it off. I would take really unique gigs. I remember one, you know, come home for Edinburgh Festival every August. I remember one thing I did for an Australian dance group called Legs on the Wall. So they were like a physical acrobatic dance company, guys standing on women's shoulders, standing on guys' shoulders, standing on women's shoulders. It was incredible. Um, and one of the women in it was pregnant as well, visibly pregnant. So she's standing, she's got a baby <laughs> coming and she's standing on people's shoulders. So you could focus on the dance, but you're also focusing on her circumstance. And they were a, they were a crazy party. I remember DJed at their finishing party, the Edinburgh Festival. And to say that they were taking a lot of Colombian exports was an understatement. <laughs> but I remember I DJed there in this beautiful Georgian U-Town house. This was huge, bigger than a nightclub. So when I say a house, I mean a, a Georgian house that was bigger than a nightclub on the third floor. And this, <laughs> a couple started making out in the middle of the dance floor. This party got so wild. And the woman who was dating the guy who was making it walked into the dance floor and she jumped out of the window in shock. So I've had an experience as a special event DJ, having a party going crazy, 
having a couple making out on a dance floor, having the the partner of the guy who was making a dance floor enter the dance floor, stand in shock and jump out a window. And everyone thought, that's it, we we're going to have police sirens. And there was scaffolding outside the window, so she actually fell like two feet um, as well. So the point being, you could be a resident DJ and just turn up, do your set, get your check and leave. <laughs> but doing the special events has its upside as you have memories you'll never forget. Like I remember like the entire dance floor, lights up, music off, a woman just jumped out of the window and fell two feet. So we actually got her back in and continued partying. But yeah, <laughs> there's a trade-off there. But yeah, the residency thing happened later in life. For the main part during my university years, it was just one-off things. Yeah, because it, it must be hard when you when you study in a pretty intense subject as well, which I, I'm guessing economics is. Yeah, well, it is. Um, it is. It's just the hours, man. It's just the hours. Like the time you spend on a residency, where you want to make every set different. That's what people don't appreciate with DJ culture is you're not just turning up and doing a two hour set. You're thinking constantly. Your brain goes into a trap mode of just what's going to work, what songs on the radio that I can build off, is there a sample in that somewhere I could play the original, how do you stay true to your Jungle Brothers lyric ethic of just getting the message across without crossing over. Residencies take up a lot of mental time. There's maybe two or three hours of physical time in a booth, but the mental time is huge. I don't think DJs get enough respect for what they do when when they're applying their craft correctly. Yeah, yeah. Since since starting doing this podcast, I've re I've realised just how lazy a DJ I was. <laughs> well, now they cheat, right? Now they sit behind all this equipment and they stuck a USB stick in and then just pretend to look busy for two hours and get paid dollars. So that that for me, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror in the morning if I got away with that. For me, it has to be vinyl, has to be crafted. Rich Medina was one of, in Philadelphia was one of my biggest teachers in the DJ, and he said, it's all in how you thread these songs together. If you're not doing that, you're just a goddamn jukebox. And that really stuck with me, which was just like, I don't want to be a goddamn jukebox. I want to be a DJ. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how people, people can apply their craft differently, but the real DJs, the ones who are putting thought into the sets, trying to create intimacy in a crowd of many, you know, there's a lot of mental hours put into a couple of hours of physical work. Yeah, th this is it. I mean, I, I would very much, I think I probably planned out my first one or two sets I ever did. And then from <laughs> there, when I only had a few records, I didn't need to plan because I didn't, didn't have enough records to plan. And then after that, um, just I, I, I definitely got lazy with playing the same things every time I played because of just other commitments taking my focus away. But yeah, the amount of work that people put in, in terms of the practicing, in terms of the, the getting the records. And I think a thing for you as well that comes through is is the um, the desire to have the one-offs, the specials, the, yeah. the hand-gifted records, you know. Um, so when you finished university, did you stay up in Scotland or was that when you moved to London? Yeah, so I stayed in Scotland for four years, um, working in the civil service for equivalent of the Treasury in Scotland when Gordon Brown was our Chancellor, um, and wore a black suit, a blue shirt, and a red tie to go to work. And then at home, was I got my big break, which is writing for a publication called Straight No Chaser. So I took up covering Philadelphia hip-hop 
for straight no chaser. So my sisters used to call me Batman because you had this completely contrasting lifestyle of civil servant <laughs> by day and Philly hip hop de- journalist by night. But yeah, I really owe, owe it all to uh, firstly a trip to the North Sea Jazz Festival in Den Haag. It's now in Rotterdam. Uh, it was in it was in Den Haag, which is the capital of Holland, and the jazz festival was across the road from the war trials of Slobodan Milosevic. So you had Roy Hargrove blowing horn here, and <laughs> evil dictator who killed hundreds of thousands of people getting prosecuted just across the road. So it was a very oh, interesting God. location. But then I came back and I was in Dusseldorf, and I built up the confidence, and I mean the confidence, it sounds easy for people from London to say this, but to call the offices of Straight No Chase of this magazine that had been my Bible for six years and try and speak to someone. And you're like, it's this sort of London thing of like speaking to somebody from London who writes for Straight No Chase. They're not going to pick up the phone to you. And I left voicemail after voicemail, and then the phone was picked up and Paul Bradshaw spoke to me, and I was so nervous, thinking... And was Paul Bradshaw the editor? The editor-in-chief. So you have Paul Bradshaw, Neil Spencer was part of the editorial team in the early days, Giles Peterson, obviously a core part of that publication throughout, and to this day, it has been relaunched. But yeah, Paul spoke to me, and he said to me, what did you see at Norsey Jazz that you think I haven't heard of? And I thought, That's an interesting question. He wants to go to the edge, which is what people like us do. I said, well, I saw this performance by this band called Kip Hanrahan's Deep Rumber. And and I said the word, and, and he cut me up. And he spoke for 15 minutes about Kip Hanrahan's Deep Rumber, <laughs> about the records, his story, how underground that sound was, how intense that sound was. I just want to say it blew my mind watching it live. And he just kept on talking. He said, yeah, yeah, um, uh, 650 words. I was like, what do you mean? He said, you're going to write for Straight No Chaser. So I got undercurrent 650 words to cover the North Sea Jazz Festival in the publication, which was insane to get that done. Came out with an issue with Ursula Rucker on the cover, a beautiful cover. I mean, the design of Chase was as good as the words. The design was phenomenal. And I got the undercurrent section. That was, for me, the door-opening moment. You know, I'd been knocking on doors, but finally one had opened. And I could say to somebody, I'm not just a DJ or a music lover. I'm doing something. I'm getting the message across in written form without crossing over in written form. So what was your background in writing before that then? Because there's obviously having the knowledge of the music. None. And I couldn't write. (laughs) I asked a lot of people to help write that 650 words, I can tell you. Uh, I even credit Alison Dexter, um, who was a Cambridge graduate that I kind of got to know a bit. And uh, I was like, can you help me write? Because I can't write. (laughs) I've been given a chance to write. So yeah, just to be clear, um, learning how to write was a pretty steep curve when you're writing for a publication where street language is so prevalent like Chaser. There's there's jazz terminology in Straight No Chaser that really works. Now, I love that terminology that they use. It's applicable to all cultures. And you can still see many of the phrases that they gave life to, you know, being used today. And uh, yeah, I needed a lot of help to learn how to write, how to structure. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've kept on with that given, is it two books? Well, it's one book, but I will say that, you know, hop, skip, jump to the book briefly here. Um, when it when I got my book advance and I realized I was going to step down and go full time into book writing mode and sit in the British Library staring at paragraphs that won't grow, there's <laughs> one book for your audience, which for me got me out of a cul-de-sac you know, dug me out of a rut. And it's William Zinser, Z-I-N-S-E-R, 
um, a Yale academic who spent 50, 60 years of his life teaching people how to write. And the book is called On Writing Well, White Cover, Blue Letters, On Writing Well by William Zinser. And that book, it took me like three days to read it because it just felt like finally I found someone out there in the ether who's going to open my head and pile in knowledge about writing and close my head again. I, I just battered through it. And the chapter on clutter, when you realize the, you know how much clutter is in language, how a sentence with 25 words could be a sentence with nine words and still have more meaning, incredible. Um, I couldn't recommend it enough. And I've bought it for so many people who have said to me, Will, you've inspired me to write a book. And I just buy them that and say, before you write, you got to read and you've got to read this. So yeah, learning how to write is, and you, you don't learn, you're always learning how to write. It's a never ending journey. But yeah, from Straight No Chaser in 2001 to all the way up to writing a book in 2019, 20. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a craft that I didn't have and I'm glad I've got a little bit of it. But I'm so grateful to the copy editors, people who write for The Atlantic and boy, they can write or The New Yorker, you know, these essayists, they're just incredible what they can do with words. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you're saying about clutter in that book because when I was studying academically, I always struggled to reach word counts. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd, I'd maybe get to 70% and then really, really <laughs> struggle to, 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 um, to reach that, that minimum. Yeah. And then when you get into the real world, people want you to be as concise as possible. So it's quite strange you get taught these you get taught in the opposite way to what actually works in the real world. Yeah. If you can say it in a paragraph, say it in a paragraph, look at Twitter and the character count there. That, that's, yeah. that's conditioned our brains to, in terms of attention spans, what we're able to take in. Just one funny anecdote from that book. And I really want to stress William Zinser on writing well, the, the power that book's had on me and I'm sure hundreds of thousands of people have learned how to write thanks to thanks to spending $9.99 on Amazon and reading that book. It's value for your money considering what higher education costs. But he has this thing in one of the chapters where he says, a lot of writers get confused who they're writing for. Are they writing in the first person, in the third person, from an observational stance, from an anecdotal stance? You know, who, how do I write this paragraph, this sentence, this chapter, when I don't know who I'm writing for? And he says, stop. You're writing, so write for yourself. And he does it in a way that really makes you confident and say, it's my story and I'm going to tell it. Stop this third person nonsense. You tell a story. And he said, not enough people these days have the bravery to start a paragraph with the words, I'll never forget the time that. And that just jumped out at me like, wow, I'll never forget the time that. If I'm trying to win Adam Dow's attention and I begin a paragraph with, I'll never forget the time that, he's going to pay attention because it's I'll never, which is precedent, ever to stress, forget, so we have memory, the time, which we have an event, in the space of, what, eight words, I've got you all by the palm of my hand. I thought it was incredible. So then I sit in the British Library, you know, standard routine, sitting there on your own with your, you know, your, your laptop and your notes and your books, and I started writing, and you vomit words when you're writing a book, and I vomited about 3,000 words, and every fucking paragraph began with words. I'll never forget the time yeah. that. I just tried to put the whole lot in the trash can. It's like, you're going to have to really reconfigure your writing skills here. But it just jumped out at me. It's like, it gave me the confidence. Be proud in the time that you'll never forget, and tell them. Don't wander around the block and say, there was this occasion where this person never... No, you told the story. You tell it. 
you you stress the importance of the paragraph. But yeah, it's a, a, a for for me as a DJ, but then to become a writer, that book is priceless in my life. He was, mm. he, I owe him more than I owe anyone else in that whole process. I suppose that's a bit like finding an incredible drum break and just trying to use it for every beat that you make. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's amazing. But why are you using Impeach the President again? <laughs> um. Hey, guys. I hope you're enjoying Once a DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with Sure Shot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from winterdj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out sureshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what you're waiting for, visit howtomakemusic.co. So how long were you writing for Straight No Chaser then? Uh, I wrote for them from 2001 to 2007 which is when the magazine folded. Last issue of the magazine, I covered the Black Lily Festival, spelt with one L, Black Lily, uh, in Philadelphia for Women in Soul. Uh, I wrote the preview with uh, Jazzy Fatnasties and all the team in Philadelphia that were working it. Then I wrote the review where, interestingly, uh, Amy Winehouse came to perform at the Black Lily. So you had Amy Winehouse telling Jill Scott which changing rooms she could use, and that was a bit of a cat fight backstage. You don't tell Jill Scott anything in Philadelphia. She tells you which change room you're going to use. But yeah, that was uh, an incredible event. And then the magazine folded after that issue as well. So so you were very in the neo-soul. Hip-hop and neo-soul. Um, yeah. Very stretched to Philadelphia. For example, you know, I was the first journalist, I'm not going to say the word ever, but at least in my memory, to interview Bahamadia. Right. And a lot of people there is like, how is this kid from some bedroom in Edinburgh, Scotland, managed to get that interview, and she was very nervous about doing it. I used, you know, our grandmother raised us to say, always do to others like you'd want done to yourself, so you'd be respectful of her, your career, the highs and the low, low, lows that she'd been through. And I got the interview, and it's just a short piece in a, an article called What's Up Philly, but I was really proud that I got there, and I was really proud that she was happy with what I did. She's like, next time we're going to catch up. Um, now, I would hope that a lot of your listeners know how important Bahamadir is to the story of hip-hop and to the story of women in hip-hop especially. I would put her and Moni Love right up there as one and two in terms of the most influential people I can think of in terms of women in hip-hop as well. But I worry that there's generations today who don't know those names. You know? Could you could you give us a brief explanation then? Because it's not all going to be just be kind of hip-hop heads with this because it's, it's as much about growth and about the broader 
thing of DJing than just hip hop. So if you could just give us a bit of a summary for the listeners. Well, I, well, I think the best thing, and I wish th- this is where I wish podcasts could use music. <laughs> we have Dang. to fix licensing out here because this is where we should really play some Bahamadir and Moni Love. But Bahamadir's voice, the tone of the voice, I I often felt it was like a snake for some reason. When I listen to it in the intimacy and you think about words and animals, she'd rap like a snake and the lyrics would just slither around the beat. And that was a style I'd never heard being done before. And it just hit you like, what is she doing? Like some people say that rap, rap language is very lyrical. Like some rappers rap like a trumpet player might hone a beat or an alto sax player might hone a beat they they're literally forming like a horn section with words it's a very good comparison other rappers are like they just bless the beat with phrasing techniques like the nas and the black thought and these showbiz and ag these people i i visualize that as you know throwing a blanket over a sofa and watching it fall into place like they just know which words fall into place in that beat mm-hmm. But Bahamadia, she was like a snake. She just slithered around the beat, and it was just so softly spoken. And by being, you know that thing you get when when people speak softly at meetings as opposed to shouting at meetings, it forces other people to listen in. Yeah. So if you really want to listen, don't raise your voice. That's what Bahamadia did with hip-hop. She made you right. listen by not raising your voice. Chuck D, he bellows like a sports announcer. Bahamadia, she whispered like a snake. So yeah, very unique rap. That's kind of like not comparing myself to her but it's kind of like with scratching if i was ever at like a scratch jam with people that were just being like super technical i'd just try and be a lot more open yeah and think more about phrasing so that what i was doing was different because it's like uh, i can't run as fast as this person i may as I, i might be better off finding a different way to get there i don't know if that analogy works but um but as well with Bahamadir, I mean, uh, the nice thing about that story is that if, if you've given her a really um, sensitive and considered experience of that first interview, that may well be something that she's taken with her into her life, and that could have had a really big impact on her, so fair play for that as well. I hadn't thought about that, actually, but that's important. I mean, she had a lot of lows, 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 right? So if that gave her the strength to come back into the ring at some other future point, that'd, be, that'd make me very happy. Definitely. I mean, the, the, the reason that I'm doing this is it's all about empowering people to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you can give the person that experience and you can help them think about what their story is in a different way as well, I think there's a load of value in that. Yeah. Um, so just back onto your timeline then. Um when you moved to London then, um, what work was it that you were doing? Who were you working for? So I moved to London to be the chief economist of the Performing Rights Society, which is songwriters and publishers, the equivalent of ASCAP or BMI for American listeners, Gamer in Germany, SASM in France. And that's where I became like literally the first economist in the music business. So, you know, you have no you have no guidance as to what's been required because it's never been done before. So the last sentence of my book, Tars and Economics, Pivot as a paperback, says, don't wait for your job description, create your job description. Yeah. And that's literally what I did to move to London and become a music industry rockonomist economist. Um, I created it. as like, your business is falling off a cliff due to piracy. We could literally be closing the music industry in a few years' time at this rate. We were spending millions on litigation. We were losing billions in revenues. 
and it's been run by lawyers and I want to be the first economist to suggest that we do things differently and this is what I want to do. So here's my job description, now you hire me. And I got it. So you approached them? 100%. That's amazing. Um, I didn't just approach them. Just to cut a long story short, I got on a 35 bus in Edinburgh to leave work after doing local income tax reform, <laughs> the most boring area of the civil service possible. And I found a Financial Times on the bus. And we still keep the actual article here in the house. And the article was written by a guy called Adam Singer, the chief executive of the PRS at the time. And the headline said, Digital Ants Wreck the Music Industry's Picnic. And I read it, and I thought, wow, I finally found a CEO who's thinking like I'm thinking. Usually the CEOs haven't got a clue what they're doing. This one does. And there's a few mistakes in the article. And my dad said to me, never be shy approaching anyone, because the worst they can tell you to do is to back off, or slightly vulgar words to that effect. So I wrote him a letter. I sat in a pub in Edinburgh with my friend, and he helped me write the letter to say, you know, this is a great article, but I've got some problems with some of the arguments you've made. They seem a bit back to front. Sent the letter off, and um, three days later, on the central switchboard of the civil service in Scotland, this call came in saying, we have Adam Singer on the phone for you. I crapped my pants, like, oh, my God, I'm about to speak to the CEO of somebody in the music industry based in London. What will he say? The first thing he said to me was to thank me for the corrections because he's dyslexic. You know, he said, when you have an increase in supply, the barriers to entry fall. I said, no, 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 no. I know what your point is, but you have to do it the other way around. When barriers to entries fall, then you can have an increase in supply. The first thing he says was, I'm dyslexic, so these are great corrections for me. Should I use this speech again? I'm gulping at this point. Second, second thing he said is, come to London on the 20th of April. I want to speak to you. And he put me in a meeting room for an entire day and threw questions at me about the music industry, which I knew nothing about. One quick example, and I'll wrap it up. He said, um, Will, how would you price a music catalogue? I got no effing idea how to price a music catalogue. What I do know about is auction design. So I said, well, what I would do is, we're trying to discover a price here. Price discovery is auction design. I've designed an auction. Tell me about auction design. Well, you can have a ascending price auction like we have in Britain. We look at how they sell fish in Israel or flowers in Amsterdam. You can have a descending price auction where you start at the top and work backwards. First in gets first out. Or if you look at how Google are selling adverts back then, you had a Vickery auction design, which is our second price sealed bid auction to ensure the bidder. You know, anyone who wins an auction is a sucker because nobody else is willing to pay as much as them for the good, right? So talk to him about auction design for like 40 minutes. He's like, in 70 years, I don't think this industry has ever considered auction design for pricing music catalogs. Next question. The whole day was like that. Left completely frazzled, like white in the face frazzled. Went back to Scotland. My sister was saying to me, don't get your hopes up. You know, you keep on getting turned down. And the following Monday after that weekend, they called me up and said, let's make you the chief economist at PRS. Had I not picked up that article in a Financial Times on a 35 bus in Edinburgh, I would not be here now. But then also it's it's that it's hustle, you know, that, that hustle that you had to approach them, do you think? Knocking every um, door possible. I got a thousand no's before I got a yo. And that's such a thing that's true to being a DJ as well. Going into bars, for example, going up to people, do you want to buy this tape? You know, yeah. it's, it's something that we, Resilience. That we do. Yeah, because there's no recruitment process in DJing, is there really? So it's you've got to make these opportunities for yourself, knowing when to do things for free, knowing when to not. 
knowing what the other value is around it. These are sort of common threads in all of these conversations. Um, what was the work-life balance like then when you were doing that job? Because that's a that's I'm guessing a high-pressure job um, and a new job, so there's no kind of protocol or process for you to necessarily follow. You could have a rocking good time and get paid for it. <laughs> and and add on top, you know, coming to London and taking on that role, we actually had a residency. That's when I ran our first residency. Crazy story. I, in Scotland, you speak to people in public transport. In England, you don't. Yeah. So in Scotland, public transport is a place to commute. In Scotland, you speak to people in gents' toilets. In England, you don't. In Scotland, you speak to everyone all the time. It's a much more <laughs> yakking culture than it is down here. My first time coming home, I was on a 55 bus going out to Hackney, Clapton, where my first awful flat was before getting the accommodation situation sorted. And this Rastafarian gets on the top deck of the bus carrying an instrument. And I said to him, is that a guitar or a bass? He said, it's a bass, Mark. I said, okay, so it's a bass. What type of music are you playing? He said, Roots Reggae. I was like, okay, let me try and sort of picture what sort of Roots Reggae you're describing. And I was talking about, you know, some Roots Reggae artists I'd worked with and African artists I was interested in. He said, so you know the high life? He said, yeah. I said, well, come to Passing Clouds, which is on Clapton's High Street, and uh, come and see this night we have called the Afro Spot. So I gave him my phone number uh, after seeing the show on the back of a bus ticket. And he called me up like months later saying, sorry, I split up with my girlfriend. I got all my stuff back and I found your phone number. I was like, great. Well, I saw you perform. It wasn't Passing Clouds. I saw him perform at the Camden Jazz Cafe. And I said, well, I'm going to get you to play at North Sea Jazz. And I got the band booked for the following year's North Sea Jazz Festival, the 2007 North Sea Jazz Festival, a band called the Soothsayers with Kajovi Kush on bass played in front of 15,000 people at North Sea Jazz, thanks to bumping into him on a 55 bus in Hackney. I was like, wow. Then we started the Afrospot nightclub in Passing Clouds. Last Saturday of the month, 11-piece West African band, 99% West African audience, a tall, pale, skinny, Scottish white DJ on decks. Um playing music from that era and just to show you what made that club unique i would play a song called mama don't cry by the afro afrobeat all-stars and the drummer kofi avivo would come over to the booth and say what record are you playing there and i'd show him the record he'd say there i am and he showed me where he is in the credits so a lot of the high life west african musicians from the 70s and early 80s who then migrated under thatcher's britain to london soon after were the musicians playing at our club so the dj was playing the vinyl of the musicians who were on stage. That was crazy. And we we took High Life to the next level because there's points where there was four High Life clubs happening in East London on the same night and they were all selling out. You're just like, this club's gonna be dead. We've got a clash in the booking. Some bozos put us up against a neighboring club doing a similar groove. And they all had cues around the block. And then strap that up, then we made a documentary. So your audience can go to and we can link it to your show. And Black Stars of High Life, if you Google those words, you'll find a 27-minute documentary about the rise, fall, and resurgence in high life globally. And we interviewed them all. We have CK Mann, he's passed away. We have Ebo Taylor, who's still with us. We had Bessie Simmons. We had them all. We went there in a Christmas time. It's a Christian country. We interviewed every one of those high life legends and documented their story. So, yeah, there came a residency, and there came left leaving a, a real footprint in London and British nightclub culture by bringing high life to that level. I take a lot of pride in that.
Brilliant. So how did DJing go from there? What was the peak amount of times you were DJing in a week? So that was once a month at Passing Clouds and a whole lot of time preparing those sets. So, um, and we ran it from 2008 right way through to the last night of Passing Clouds. I DJed with the Sunra Orchestra playing um, Brilliant. in that venue. And to be clear, like for the first few years, that place didn't even have a liquor license. Never mind a music license. <laughs> it was, and it was also it was a fire hazard. Like you wouldn't believe. There's all these candles and robes everywhere. And it was very hard to focus, thinking this thing could go up and smoke any minute. It didn't. Thank God, it didn't. But I really worried about the fire risk of that place. By the time it finished, I mean it was gentrified. We actually had working functional toilets in the club. That was something. I mean that was. <laughs> with all those years and all those smells but yeah to see like by the end of the journey but then you know quite famously passing clouds got shut down as a campaign to reopen it i think it's now reopened but it's not what it was but we went through the wild years but once a month we went up there and we absolutely smashed it brilliant tell you an interesting dj story just real quick yeah we dj'd there the saturday in 2012 before the london olympics opened so you're in east london You've got this weird club called the Afro Spot. You've got your regular thing, which is you do the warm-up set, you do the interval set, and you do the climax set, the band plays. And then the band are like in the car park getting stoned out of their trees. And I'm there extending my set because they've yet to come back in. I played Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads, recorded and written in 1981. And I was like, well, David Burns from Scotland, band or famous New York band, Jerry Harrison. And the club goes crazy. The bouncers in the black puffer jackets, arms in the air, the girls serving behind the bar, dancing on the bar. The musicians who should be opening up their cases and getting ready to play are dancing. I play this one record from 1981, Once in a Lifetime Talking Heads, and a West African highlife club goes bonkers. And I get home and I try and decompose and come off the high of the set, four o'clock in the morning, like, why did that song work so well when it has nothing to do with the theme of the club? Brian Eno practically wrote that song after going to West Africa and learning about the Afrobeat. And the drum loop that's in there is basically Fela Kuti. And I was like, right. that's music. That's, that's a getting really, the message really across well without crossing um, over. It's a really well-renowned drum break as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that drum loop, that was inspired by going to West Africa sitting with Fela and all those Afrobeat musicians. And I played that song in 2012, a 1981 song in 2012, and watched people who had never heard it before just lose their fucking minds. So the, the next significant sort of event in your timeline that I know of is you start at Spotify mm -hmm. as the chief economist. Um, so what year was that? And... Was there any sort of jarring with that, given what we've discussed about musical journeys, musical consumption, intimacy? Did you did you feel any sort of type of way about starting that? No, because I think what Spotify did was to save a business that was otherwise declared dead on arrival. You got to remember how awful the music industry was before Spotify got going. Yeah, firing, not hiring. Anyone who had a job in the music industry was probably wouldn't have a job the following month. Um, advances to artists were wafer thin. The number of artists getting signed were falling. The, the whole the wheels of the business weren't turning the way they should have been turning. It was terrible. 
And then the whole thing with litigation against file sharing in America and similar campaigns across Europe, lawyers were making the problem worse, making the problem worse. What Spotify was able to do was get revenues flowing back from the consumer to the rights hold, to the creators, and get those wheels turning again. And it's, it's remarkable to think that Spotify is now north of 20 million people in this country. That's more than any radio station or TV show can ever reach in today's media climate. So new media has overtaken old media. You know, it's a whole different level set. People will always whinge. They whinged about vinyl. You know, remember shipping platinum to receive gold back just so you got your certification. We all know those stories. And artists had to pay for returns and their contracts. They complained about cassettes with production costs and damage and repair. They complained about CDs with postage and packaging distributions being deducted against their royalties. They complained about downloads because you could buy one or two downloads instead of buying the whole album. You know, the download market could have done more harm than piracy did to music revenues when you think about that. Mm. They complained about piracy and they complained about streaming. So all the concerns that you have about the music industry do need historical context. This is a business that is addicted to whinging and they'll whinge about anything. Yeah, because that that touches on my next point. Um, And this must be like a broken record thing for you. The thing that gets... um, and I'm sure you, you know what's coming. Here it comes on the horizon. I can see the eyes going. Yeah. So obviously the, the thing that, that I'd love to hear your um, insight on is um, the money that people receive per play mm-hmm. on Spotify. Because yeah. um, I, I obviously hear a lot of negativity around it. So, and the campaign that led this debate which led resulted in a three-year government inquiry into music streaming government level inquiry competition markets authority investigation was called broken record and it's a good term so here's what i explained to managers in 2008 verbatim and i'm going to explain it to you in 2023 verbatim and managers would hold you against a wall hold you up off the floor with their vital lapels say, how can you justify half a penny per stream? You know, you're stealing music. This is, you know, undervaluing our art. Fine. The example. Let's say your song is played on BBC Radio 2's Breakfast Show, the highest value per stream payout you're going to see in the British music industry. And by the way, the BBC pays handsomely for music. Compared to any other country, good money. Your song gets played by Zoe Ball at 8.15 in the morning on the BBC Radio 2 Breakfast Show. As a songwriter, you receive £90. As an artist, you receive £60. 90 plus 60 equals £150 for the singer-songwriter of that song. Pay the artist, pay the publisher, pay the label, pay everyone. Right, fine. 150 has travelled from the rights user to the rights holder. You compare £150 for one play against half a penny on Spotify, and you would be right to be aghast. How can the difference be so great? Hold on. The radio play was listened to by 8 million people. So it's a one-to-many broadcast calculation that 8 million people listening to one song is worth £150. If you divide £150 by the 8 million, you get 0.000038 when you do the math. A lot less than the 005 you receive from Spotify. Follow this. Let's say those 8 million people who heard the song as they're having their breakfast in the morning then go and stream it on Spotify on their way to work, which is not implausible, by the way, not implausible at all. Then you would receive 
£40,000, not £150. Every time I explain this point, the difference between one-to-many broadcast and many one-to-one narrowcast, the manager puts me back down on the floor, apologises for the aggressivity, and buys me a pint. And that has been going on since 2008. If you can't understand that mass, you don't deserve to be in this business. But if those 8 million people went back to Spotify, it's 40,000. I'm not saying they will. I'm just saying now you understand why Spotify pays more than radio per listener because that's what the judge laid down when we established copyright law. The more you interact with the content, the higher you pay. Here's Tom with the weather. How many times have you had to tell that story? (laughs) Um, Every day that ends in a letter Y. (laughs) Well, it's, it's really good to hear that, and I'll be sharing this with as many people as possible just to give that clarity on it. It doesn't make it easy. I'm not saying it's a land of milk and honey. It is tough to get the numbers to work, but you can get them to work. It takes a lot of momentum, but you've got to hold that framework of why does Spotify pay more than Pandora in America? Because Pandora's more like radio. Spotify's more like ownership. There's a law that says... Spotify should pay more than Pandora, and Pandora should pay less than Spotify. That's the law. That's the law that we're working with. So, yeah, it doesn't make it any easier than selling downloads instead of albums. It doesn't make it any easier than selling CDs with postage and packaging, distribution, deduction costs coming off the top. It's not easy, but there's a lot of artists making it work now. A lot more artists used to be a very closed-door club. used to be a top 40. Now we talk about a top 40,000. Yeah, I guess it's just a very dis- dis- a very different dispersion. Yeah of the money and education is key and i credit a a dear friend and colleague back at spotify brian johnson and mark williamson um who has a company called roster r-o-s-t-r and those two quickly saw what i brought to the table and said you're going to be busy and mark and brian just took me on a roadshow just addressing managers artists managers artists again and again and again here's here's the tools Brian would explain, here's the vision, Mark would explain, and here's the economics, Will would explain. So these people would leave the room after doing things like verifying their Spotify account on their laptops. They hadn't done that before. They'd bitch and whinge about us and threaten us, but they hadn't bothered to verify their artist account so we could help them. And it's just education. And at the PRS, you know, just draw a parallel here. The number one complaint I used to get at the PRS was, oh, PRS suck, they've not spent, send me any money ever. And the first question I would ask is, have you joined? Yeah. And more often than not, they say, yeah, I couldn't be bothered with the paperwork. Well, how do you expect to get money from the bank if you haven't joined a bank then? Yeah. <laughs> I'll put you in a headlock and make you sign this form so I can get you your £4,832, which you've generated on the BBC radio over the past four years. But until you sign that paperwork, I don't like doing paperwork. No, you've got to because I want to pay you the money. So again, just education, education, education. The amount of education in this business is insane and it's it's never ending. It's like painting the fourth road bridge. When you finish one end, you have to go back and start again. Um, but it's, it's the same. PRS, people wouldn't join and complain. Spotify, people wouldn't understand and complain. It's not their fault. It's complicated, but the answer is an education. So when did you leave Spotify? Was that to write the book? Yeah, so I, I, I stepped down from Spotify uh, in late 2019 to go full-time on the book. I was determined to do the book full-time. That was a vision of mine. Like I didn't want to try and combine all the other things going on in my life with writing a book. Had to, and I got an advance, and thank you, Curtis Brown, my agent for generating an advance, which made it financially sound idea to do full-time on the book. And I think I produced a better book for it. 
And you, there's stuff that you can do in the artistic process when it's just you and that 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 goal that you can't do with a bunch of other distractions. And that the process of going to the British Library or you know, I was made a fellow of London School of Economics. I had my own office with a bathtub at Lincoln and Fields. That was quite an office. Just before we locked down the country, I had three months there. But I had rhythm, and rhythm is what gets ideas, and ideas is what gets the manuscript to move from 60,000 words to 64,000 words to 70,000 words. Uh, but yeah, still, I've done a lot of work with Spotify since, which you can see on their website, Loud and Clear, which explains in loud and clear terminology, this is how our business is working. And got to work with a bunch of other music companies, major labels, other streaming services, uh, as well brilliant and what does djing look like for you now then uh so i fell in love with mixcloud um around about let's just go back seven or eight years ago um yeah <laughs> the answer's in the title one for the team in 2015 um i caught up with some of the straight no chaser community in new york tyler askew um and it just reminded me of just what it meant to look at the Chaser charts, what it meant to read those interviews, those album reviews, those undercurrent sections, those Clubs of the World guides, met DJ Nicodemus, and I just got my energy back and said, well, we have this thing called Mixcloud, a very important Mixcloud, founded by Nico Shah and Nico Perez. It's licensed. It's not a DMCA service. It's not a piracy service. Yeah. They, they actually got yeah, the license. Right. And for me, working in copyright, that mattered a lot. I was like, now we have a licensed DJ service. Maybe I should do what I did back at university with cassette tapes and just get a mix up there. So I did one for the team in 2015, worked like crazy on the mix, again, in the artistic process of putting it together, getting it blended, getting shout outs for it so I could lace it. So it's a real, like a live DJ set when you have shout outs integrated um, and put that up. And then I think almost every year since I've managed to bless Mixcloud with a mix. And the numbers get bigger and bigger. And I, in 2018, I did Full Tilt Boogie after being in Miami for two two visits. Miami, DJ culture, Miami, you got to go. It's it's different. Like I met Emilio Estefan, you know, husband of Gloria. I met Willie Clark. Um, met DJ Yeoman, who's one of this incredible collector who does analog transfers there. There's so much happening down there. And it's just such a weird city. The best, I love the expression that the best thing about Miami is that it's so close to the United States of America. I love that expression. Wow. It's just like, it just has its own rule book. It has its own history. Think about, think about the film Scarface for a second. And I would encourage people to dig up the original documentary, Cocaine Cowboys. Not the one that was on Netflix. The original one, the first one, not Reload, the original one. Yeah. And that makes Scarface look tame uh, compared to what was going on in Miami. And that was our lifetime. That was 1979 to 1985. Yeah. Have you read um, the book American Desperado? No. That's about John Roberts from Cocaine Cowboys. Really, really interesting. Yeah. And I've heard that um, John Frankenheimer or someone, the team that were involved in Top Gun are actually looking to make a, a movie around the documentary. I yeah. did my first ever review on IMDb about that because I just wanted people to get the message across without crossing over, understand that when you go to Miami and you want to understand music, you need to understand that element of history there that goes with it. But um, yeah, the Fuel Tilt Boogie set was just for me to get Jimmy Bohorn, a shout out from Jimmy Bohorn. DJs have played Spank for years. 
I had Get Happy and um, Dance Across the Floor. You know, his song was sampled by Stereo MCs for Connecting, Do You Want to Be My Lover? His role in our music in Britain is huge. I had a shout out from Harry Casey from Casey and the Sunshine Band, you know, playing two of his tracks. I don't think Barack Obama's got shout out from Casey and the Sunshine Band. I have. Um, I, I just dug deep and I had to license tracks for that mix as well. I really wanted to honor the copyright and get these songs heard by a wider audience. That hit 40,000. And it's just, I don't know, Mixcloud just allows you to do what you love at scale, but it's intimate. God, it could have a better social interface. And now on SoundCloud as well, which I think does do a better social interface. But yeah, you're getting the message across without crossing over. And I don't have to buy cassette tapes or print out liner notes to go with it. So it's what's not to like. That's brilliant. That That's a lovely way to round things off. Um, so just before we go then, because um, I'm mindful of your time, um, have you got any key pieces of advice for anyone that's looking to start DJing? Um, if you're starting out, learn your history. I mean, real history. It's fraught with problems and tensions, but the Ken Burns documentary about jazz it's 12 hours. That could be two long-haul flights there and back to consume. But to start learning about not just the story of New Orleans, which, as we know, where jazz began, the role of Creoles, who are middle-class classically trained musicians who overnight joined the African-American community. That frustration led to the celebration. But, you know, to learn about Kansas City, you know, I really stress there's these moments in musical history your next guest will pick another one. Your next guest after that will pick another one. If I was to pick on one about learning the history before you get into DJing, get to Kansas. It all went down there. Tom Pendergast, the mayor, staunch Catholic, rich Catholic values for his family, couldn't give a flying F-U-C-K what happened downtown Kansas. And all the circuses that would travel across America, these musicians would get to Kansas and realize there's liquor, there's hookers, there's jazz, there's parties. And they, would, they wouldn't get back on the circus bus. Count Basie, my hero, you know, he kicked it off in Kansas. You know, Bird, Charlie Parker, Billy Holiday, Lester, they were all in Kansas. So I think the beautiful thing about trying to work out how to break music in the future, the beautiful thing about learning about your past, is you'll find these moments in history which no fictional writer could have written the story of Kansas. Ditto many, many other stories. The New York punk scene, if you want to go down that path. The LA hip-hop scene, if you want to go down that path. But if you look at Kansas and you understand what what got bubbling in that city and how that story hasn't been told, it gives you an energy to say, well, I want to tell stories. I want, to, I want people to hear stuff they wouldn't have heard otherwise. I want to get the message across without crossing over. Brilliant. Right, Will Page, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for sharing your story. Appreciate yours. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at onceadjpodcast. Take care. We'll speak to you soon.